No. <laughs> Anything I, I shouldn't ask about is to do. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a social norms. <laughs> Have you ever killed a man? <laughs> All right, I'll wear that. Then I'll start. <laughs> You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode you meet a different scientist and find out about the discoveries they make and the stories behind them. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and in this episode, I'm joined by evolutionary biologist, postdoctoral researcher, and modern-day Renaissance man, Dr. Chris Reed. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Dr. O'Hanlon, thank you for having me on. <laughs> now, I should point out, in one of the very early In Situ Science episodes, we interviewed a different Chris Reed. Ah, that guy. <laughs> He was the Beatle guy at the museum. Yes. You're a different Chris Reed. I know him well. <laughs> probably receive about 30% of his emails. Yeah. <laughs> so he's the Beatle guy. What what sort of guy are you? Probably the ant guy. Okay. But also the slime mold guy. Slime mold. Okay. Can you explain to our listeners what a slime mold is? Definitely. Uh, so a slime mold is a protist. Even though it's called a mold, it's not a fungus. Okay. It's from a totally different class of life. And, so, and a protist for, for non-microbiologists? <laughs> well, no one really knows what a protist <laughs> is. Yeah. That's basically the, the class of organisms where we dump all the stuff that doesn't fit anywhere else. All right, a little leftover cellular yeah. Blobs. So most of them are tiny little unicellular things like paramecium or right. little animal-y things crawling around. Mm -hmm. The slime mold's one of them, but it's not microscopic. It's a unicellular organism that can grow to the size of a table, almost. Okay, so here, you say unicellular. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean it's, it's one big cell. Okay, okay. This, uh, this might take some explaining because, I mean, I know what how slime molds work, but I always sort of understood that they almost blurred the line between unicellular and multicellular. Yes. Discuss. Discuss. <laughs> so, so, I say one big cell. Yeah. Uh, and it is one big cell, but there's millions of nuclei and mitochondria, all the little machines inside cells that make them work. Mm -hmm. It's got many copies of those, just like we do. But where each of our cells is separated by a little membrane and mm -hmm. distinct from the other cells, the slime mold doesn't have that. It's just one big bag of goo <laughs> oozing around the forest floor. All right. It's, and that's essentially what they look like. It's yeah, a big yellow floor blob. slime. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and so what do they do? What, what's interesting about them? <laughs> so... They're actually capable of some really intelligent kind of behavior, interestingly mm -hmm. enough. So even though they don't have a brain or any neurons, scientists have shown that they're actually capable of solving difficult problems mm -hmm. like mazes and trade-offs between uh, decisions that are good on one hand and bad on the other. They can trade up all the multiple attributes of different kinds of decisions and make mm -hmm. the best one. Uh, they can anticipate periodic events. Um, they're even capable oh. of a small, of a primitive form of learning. Uh, all of this without any neuron 
in the whole system. So, so, and so this is, I guess, associated with food. A lot so of it is. We can predict if there's a periodic food. Well, in fact, the, the periodic thing was more uh, a negative stimulus than oh. a positive stimulus. So they would basically they grow a slime mold along a, a track. Yeah. So it's moving along a track very slowly. It moves about a maximum speed of a, a centimeter an hour. So. You have to adjust your time scale to that. <laughs> but they would blast the slime mold with cold, dry air at periodic intervals. Okay. And the slime mold doesn't like that, so it would stop during those periods. But then when they ceased blowing the air on the slime mold, it would actually predict when the next blast was supposed to come okay. and would stop in anticipation of that. And then they let it go for a while, and it would eventually realize there wasn't any more hmm. cold blasts coming, and it would carry on. But then just one more blast, even many hours later, and the slime mold would remember when the next one was supposed to come again. Okay. So there's some mechanism inside this single cell that allows it to memorize yeah. periodic things happening and respond to them appropriately. Mm. And we have no idea what that is. And, and so you're interested in slime molds and, as you said, ants before, mm. and the similarity between them is, I guess, that we have groups of things coming together to solve problems and to function as a whole. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So yeah, collective behavior is what I tend to specialize in. Mm -hmm. So the behavior of groups of things. So ants, that makes a lot of sense. Individuals are walking around. They only have some of the information from the environment. But when you sum up the information of all the ants in a colony, it's actually a very smart system capable mm -hmm. of doing some pretty sophisticated things that we're all kind of aware of, the slime mold does a similar thing. So even though it's only uh, a single organism, one big cell, each little part of that cell is responding on a very local scale, just like the individual mm. ants do. So each small part of the slime mold spread out through the environment is only responding to local information, uh, and it's able to transmit some of that information to the neighboring part of the cell. Mm -hmm. So we can think of a slime mold like a big sort of distributed, spread out ant colony. And we mm -hmm. tend to uh, model it in the same way and come up with the same, ask it the same questions that we would of, a, of an ant colony. Right, and so the same thing happens in ant colonies then. One ant will get some information from its local environment and that information will somehow be transferred to other individuals. That's right, normally through pheromone trails. All right. So when you see a trail of ants out there between the food source and the nest, walking along, that's because a single ant has laid a little uh, volatile chemical on the ground mm. called a pheromone, and that encourages other ants to follow that pheromone trail. And those ants lay their own trail in kind, and you very rapidly get this strong build-up of pheromone in the environment. Mm -hmm. And that way, a single ant can tell all the other ants in the colony which way to go to get to the food source. And so is this why they call ant colonies super organisms? Kind of almost just like one. Yeah, that's right. Animal. All these individual organisms are capable of behaving as if they were all one big organism, mm -hmm. which we call the superorganism. So it's essentially um, megazord. Yes. Out of the Power Rangers. That's exactly <laughs> what that... I'm If you say so. Or the Borg, or <laughs> I don't know, whatever sci fi analogy you well, I was going to ask if you'd seen Big Hero 6. Yes. <laughs> I have seen Big Hero 6. Yes. And this ties in because 
studying collective behaviors has potential implications for robotics. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Just like in Big Hero Six, right? It's exactly like in Big Hero Six. One day, maybe. Yeah. So, for those who aren't aware, in so in Big Hero Six, yeah, the main the hero, the yeah, hero. His name is Hero. His name is Hero. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> the hero. Yes, he builds a, a robot that is made of lots of little robots, essentially that swarm. And all the little robots can come together and form structures, and eventually that gets stolen by the bad guy, and it's used against them. Mm. So, is this what you're trying to do? Build a weapon out of swarming <laughs> robots? You're on to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it, it, <laughs> I can't say that that's not going to happen one day. No. Uh, it is possible that we could make swarms of robots behave uh, in such a coordinated way that we see the ants do. Mm-hmm. And there are uh, several, a couple of ant species that do actually build pretty huge structures by physically joining their bodies together. Mm-hmm. So they can build things like uh, bridges out of lots of ants joined in a row to span a gap mm-hmm. the other ants can't cross. They can form chains, which are sort of like rope ladders going down to a, some platform below in the, in mm-hmm. the tree canopy. Um, some of them can even form pulling chains where it's like a tug-of-war rope. The ants latch onto each other mm-hmm. and will actually pull a leaf to get it to bend over, and that's what they nest in there. Mm-hmm. Then use their larvae to, um, to produce silk and stitch that leaf <laughs> into a big ball, and that's what they live inside. Yeah. So the idea is that these ants must be using very simple local rules to build these structures. There's no plan that they're following, no blueprints, there's no yeah, so overseer say, right, everybody, if we do step A and step B, then we'll get C. That's right. There's no, there's no single ant that's controlling yeah. what all the other ants are doing. So each of the ants just has a small amount of information um, and uses very simple behavioral rules, such mm. as if I'm walking along and all of a sudden I can't go anywhere because there's a big gap in front of me, I'll just grab onto whatever I can find and let other ants walk over the top of me. Mm-hmm. Something like that. And if, if all the ants follow those rules, then yeah. you very quickly get a bridge forming okay. over a gap without any ants knowing that they're even in a bridge mm-hmm. or what the purpose of a bridge is. <laughs> you know, they don't sit around thinking about ways to improve the environment. It just mm. happens from these very simple rules. So if we can get those rules, put them into swarms of tiny robots, then maybe we could have robots that can build structures without being told what to do. So mm. you could put them into a dangerous or unknown or unpredictable environment and they could make it safe again or be able to cross through areas or mm-hmm. rescue people, explore places without us having to know what they're up to all the time. So what's the benefit then of having these robots modularized essentially... We can get a single robot to do things automatically. Well, single robots tend to be more expensive. <laughs> so you could put all the capabilities you want into one single really mm-hmm. expensive, complicated robot, and that'll be hard to produce, but also kind of vulnerable. So if that single robot runs into trouble, comes along to something it can't handle, then... Mm-hmm. 
uh, it's pretty much shut down and, and there goes your whole mission. Mm-hmm. But if you have a whole lot of hundreds of tiny robots that are really cheap, you can afford to lose 30, 40% of them mm-hmm. and they can still achieve what they set out to do. Just like in Big Hero 6. Just like yes. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're talking about these things like there's something that we're going to have in the future, but are there, you know, early prototype collectively behaving robots currently? There are, mm-hmm. but they're very primitive. Nothing like Big Hero 6. <laughs> um, so we can have lots of little robots doing stuff. Yeah. And most of the ones we have now are very simple. They can't do a whole lot. They mostly work only in two dimensions, so on a flat table, say. Mm-hmm. Getting them... The real trouble ends up being physics, as always. The biology is fine. Okay. It's, the, it's the physics that ruins it for everyone. Yeah. Getting robots to be able to attach to each other in structurally sound ways. Yeah, okay. Um, the other problem is when we design these things, we tend to start out with a computer model of how it's going to work. And in that mm. computer model, you've got lots of simulated robots, and they're all identical. Yeah. But as soon as you start to make a whole group of robots in the physical world, mm-hmm. tiny little differences amongst all those robots start to add up. Maybe one of them is slightly slower than the other one, or it wasn't welded together mm-hmm. ideally in one spot. Yeah. If you start to sum that chance of some tiny difference happening over thousands of robots, then you start to see that they don't behave in the same way as we had predicted. Mm. So to make this sort of system work, you need sort of everything to come together. You need the computational side of it. You need the engineering side of it and can use biology as your inspiration for it. So like what sort of information is understanding animals bringing to the table then? Is it just inspiration for what sort of rules might work? Or... It's a bit, a bit of both. Yeah. So the inspiration, certainly. So I don't think what we'll be doing is, in the end, exactly copying what the ants are doing. Mm. We'll have to modify it a little bit yeah. to suit what we want to do. But actually figuring out a bit more of the natural system is actually really important at this stage. Mm. So what we need to do is to um, study how the ants build these things to get those rules the behavioural rules they use to interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, also have a look at what's the physics on these structures. Um, obviously what's happening to the ants at their level, mm-hmm. uh, lots of little tiny, very light things grouping together. If we try to emulate that in robots that are you know, car-sized or mm-hmm. dog-sized, the physics is going to work very differently. Yeah, exactly. So we need to figure that out. Um, but once we have an idea of what the rules the ants are using, then we can have a look at also adapting them to giving them maybe even extra abilities the ants don't have mm. um, to these robots. Like lasers. Exactly. <laughs> Laser beams strapped to their heads. Yes, kill, yeah. kill all humans, protocols, all that. I thought we weren't going to talk about killing people. No. That's fine. Um, <laughs> so you're just about to start a... Brand new postdoctoral fellowship here at Macquarie University. Yes. Is this what your fellowship will be doing this research? Yeah. So I want to work with uh, the, an Australian species of ant that builds all sorts of cool structures in this way. Mm-hmm. So previously I've worked with army ants in Panama, mm-hmm. which are famous for building bridges. And um, actually they build these 
whole houses, more like castles, <laughs> out of their bodies um, <laughs> called bivouacs. That's what they nest in. They nest in actual big balls of their sisters. It's kind <laughs> of weird. Are they still alive? Yeah, oh yeah, they're still okay. alive. Yeah, they're hanging, hanging from the roof and big chains, and then they group together into a big ball. Wow. And that ball has got all tunnels and chambers inside that has this, the queen and all the, the larvae. Mm-hmm. And they build one of these things every night and they move on down the road a couple of hundred meters. Oh. Every night. So it's a, it's a huge feat of. Yeah. Um, collective engineering, really. It's so, quite amazing. So yeah. I mean, is there. You might not know this, but do the ants just take turns and who has to be the walls? We have no idea. So the, the bivouac structures themselves haven't really been very well studied. Mm. We know that they're capable of lots of cool things, like they can actually control the temperature inside the nest, um, <laughs> presumably by shrinking or contracting or mm. putting their bodies closer to each other to maintain warmth or yeah. opening up chambers to let a bit of air in. But we have no idea how they do this. Okay. Um, the other, the cool thing is that they move every night for two weeks, but then for another period of two weeks after that, they stay in the one spot. And this is necessary for the, the reproductive cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the queen has to get really fat to lay a lot of eggs, yeah. and she can't move every night in that state. So she has to stay in one spot to lay out the next batch of eggs. Yeah. So, but during that phase, uh, the bivouac is sitting in the same spot. And we don't know if that means that the ants at the top attached to the roof holding up thousands, hundreds of thousands of their nestmates stay there <laughs> for that whole period because there's huge forces yeah. acting on them. Um, so it's a bit like, you know, here, this is a much simpler example, are you know, the big penguin colonies that all mm. hold together in the mm-hmm. cold and they sort of rotate and take shifts at who's at the cold front and who gets to be in the nice warm middle and things. Yep. So potentially that's happening with them taking turns at it's possible sort of constantly that they cycling are, who's doing what. But it's, it's hard to imagine how a chain of ants could swap out an individual from the middle of the chain. Mm. But they are all linked together. So, I mean, that's that's one of the, the big and kind of easy-to-answer questions. So, let's go. <laughs> Just sit and watch them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not like a cast. You know, one cast of ants is the floor. Yeah. The next one. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. They're all just this... Unfortunately, yeah. It's a, it's a similar individuals. Yeah. Or a, right. identical individuals, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Um, they do range in, in size, but there's no evidence to show that the, the different sizes perform oh, okay. any different functions. And so what are the Australian ants doing? So the Australian ants are weaver ants. They're up in far north Queensland, mm-hmm. uh, up in the wet tropics, essentially. And they also build bridges and chains, but these are the ones that build those pulling chains to make their their nests in the leaves. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be quite a different class of structure because here we have a structure that's also modifying its environment. Yeah, so, so they're not just stacking leaves on top of one another, they're taking leaves and modifying them. Yeah, they bend, they bend the leaf over. Yeah. And so... The ants have to come together to form a structure that performs a function, but they also have to keep sort of an eye on what that function is doing and how to adapt the structure mm. over time. And we have no idea how they do that. So recently we've been able to get um, do some pilot studies up there and mm-hmm. get them to form these leaf nests in the lab and yep. film the process. Um, and already we're coming up with some pretty, pretty cool stuff. So, I mean, how do you start? Are you looking for... 
you know, if there are leader ants or... One of, the, one of the big questions, we don't think there's going to be leader ants. Yep. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, one of the big questions is, what influences an ant to join a structure? Mm-hmm. So ants are walking around this big trail or, say, a leaf that they, yep. want to, they might want to roll in the future. Um, all these ants are walking around, bumping into each other, checking out the environment, um, and then they'll start to form a structure. And some of the ants will use that structure. Some of the ants will join the structure. Ants are spontaneously leaving the structure as well. It's a very mm. dynamic process. And we really have no idea what, what causes them to do that. No. So we'll, what we'll do is get them to form some kind of chain or bridge. And then film that. And we can backtrack through time. Um, any individuals that join the structure, we'll just have a look at what happened to them in the previous 30 seconds to a minute, say. Okay, so you have to... Film this happening and keep track of yes. individual ants. Try to keep track of what's happened to all the individuals. Okay. So we can see how many ants she bumped down into in a, in a period of time. Perhaps that's the main influence, influencing factor. The rule could be for an ant, if I bump into 20 ants within 10 seconds, that means there's some kind of blockage ahead mm-hmm. because the traffic's backed up, and then that could influence her to to join the structure to try and ease yeah. that blockage. So these are the simple rules we're talking about. You know, the frequency the of bumps, frequency of bumps that tells you to one. do something. Yep, exactly. All right, I'm starting to get my head around this. Yeah, it could <laughs> be speed. If I start, if I find myself walking at a slower speed than normal, hmm. um, because the, the the substrate's extra rocky or something. Yeah. And this is nice, sounding more and more just like a computer program. You know, if something happens, do this. Yes, and funny that. Yeah. Yeah. By adding yeah. all these little separate rules together, you can up with very complicated programs that do all sorts of crazy things. Yeah, exactly. So we call these rules that ants use behavioral algorithms, just like mm. an algorithm is a sequence of steps for a computer program. All right. So you have you know, three years to work on this thing. You're not. So you're not going to be. You know, you're not on making the robotics side of things, but. We recently discovered that both of us have an affinity for making stuff. We did, and yeah. The makers. I want to ask about... I, I find that doing science and making things uh, fills a very similar sort of personal desire. Mm. I mean, what what... Would you agree or do you disagree? What drives you to want to make stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I could ask the same thing about doing science. Yeah, no, I, I, th- I think you're right, though, that it fills a similar need. I think when we're doing science, we're essentially making... Um, we make a, a way to study the world, or we create things to allow us to ask questions. Mm. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that we get into science as well. Mm. And uh, it's really good that we can, in some cases, combine those two interests. So mm. um, We hear something cool is happening out there in nature. Um, we think, oh, maybe we could study that in this particular way. Mm. Let's create a way to do that. And that could mean physically creating some kind of experimental apparatus mm. that no one else has thought of before, or just making uh, some kind of experimental design uh, that will allow you to ask a specific question. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I find that particularly with animal behavior research, 
if you do that, you end up being really crafty mm-hmm. because every time you want to set up a new experiment, you know, you can't just go to you know a shop and go, all right, I need one of those chambers that you use for testing this. Yep. You have to build it from scratch. Yep. And you get really good with a hot glue gun really quickly. Yes, it's amazing how <laughs> much you can make from you know bits of cardboard tube and yeah, yeah hot glue, staples, masking tape. Yeah. And you were, cause you were playing playing your own experimental apparatus together. It's great fun, like, walking into a hardware store and mm. asking for a really weird combination of things. <laughs> and then it's like, do I explain to this person what I'm doing, or do I just walk out? Yeah, they, they always <laughs> ask, oh, what, why do you want that? <laughs> and you got the 20-minute conversation. Yeah, I got a great moment when I bought 4,000 golf tees on eBay. <laughs> just turned up at my house. This is great. Mm-hmm. This is what science is about. <laughs> it's good you could do it on eBay and skip the personal interaction. <laughs> yeah, we used all of them. It was great. Nice. You got really good at golf. <laughs> I got really good at making um, plasticine frogs and painting them and sticking them out to get nice. eaten by predators. Because <laughs> you were also showing me you were playing around with 3D printing and yeah. Making little experimental printing. chambers. and Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I mean, is science just an excuse to indulge in cool crafts? I don't think... Not for me. I don't think so. <laughs> um, it's just coincidence. I think Happy it's coincidence. coincidence. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it is neat that you get to... That you get paid to think about ways to make cool things mm. and get a nice scientific um, approach to it mm. as well. It's, it's really nice when that comes together. So... When you're coming out with a experiment or something, what what makes a good question? That's a good question. <laughs> well, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Oh, good. Um, and I think there's two kinds of scientists to oversimplify things dramatically. Uh, <laughs> but those two scientists, one of them is really interested in questions, really mm. broad things. Uh, they'll have some burning desire to understand... I don't know, the role of epigenetics in southwestern Australian forests yeah. or something like that. <laughs> or even something more broad. And they won't really care what the study system is. Um, they mm-hmm. can adapt it to be, you know, work on grasshoppers as easily as they'll work on climbing mm-hmm. vines or something, right? But I don't think I'm like that. I think I'm more interested in the study system, say ants, some okay. kind of childhood fascination with things like ants and slime molds, mm. weird, cool critters. And then I try to think of questions that can be answered by that system. Mm-hmm. And I think those two approaches, I don't think either one is superior, but mm. it's good that we can find scientists to fit those roles. So if you observe something cool happening in ants, you think, all right, I want to ask questions about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you see the broader implications of that question straight away, or does that take time? It takes time, mm. and there aren't always broader implications. Mm. And that's beginning to be a problem in science. Yes. They want broader implications <laughs> for everything, mm. and it's not good enough anymore to study something just because it's interesting. Yeah. And I don't like the way that that's going in science. Why not? Well, it takes away a whole lot of... The fascination and wonder mm. could be there otherwise. Yeah. There's no, you can't just study something because it interests you anymore. Mm. Um, 
there's a case to be made there that well we're being paid by the taxpayers maybe mm. they should get some kind of return that's more than just satisfying our own hobbies and interests but that can be counted I think easily by the fact that basic research quite often leads to a whole range of other things that we would never have mm. thought of um, and we run the risk of losing those things if we mm. don't encourage any kind of basic research if we're just after things that have an immediate short-term economic return yeah. will lose a whole bunch of the potential of science. And I think we'd have a much narrower you know, scientific perspective you know, by doing the sort of blue sky exploratory research. You come up with things that you never expected that could lead to you know, even paradigm shifts in the way we view things. But if we just keep asking very similar questions about very specific applying topics, yeah. we're never going to have those well, it doesn't become science at a, a certain point, I think, anymore. You've just, mm. You're just you no longer exploring or investigating anything. You're just applying the same process to... Product development. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, there's still the opportunity, I think, to do basic science, but to get funding to do that, you really have to think of some applied angle. Mm. Um, Is that for better or worse? easier by like has having the the robotics side of these questions yeah definitely. has that been easier to convince people why this is important <laughs> definitely i mean yeah. i think robotics is really cool mm. um, but i'm not a roboticist yeah so what i've done is thought of a way that i could team up with cool engineering people mm. uh, to study the biology that i want to study but also apply it somewhere that it mm. could potentially be useful and that's a big if. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't expect that we'll have bridge-building swarm robots in the next couple of years. Yeah. But I will try my hardest to figure out mm. the first steps of that. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people interested in that field. Mm. Um, so it'll be really fun to work with them. So you said you had a childhood fascination with ants. Well, a childish fascination, I think. <laughs> my, I, did, I grew up on a farm uh, just about six hours north of Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my fascination with ants there extended to making homemade fireworks and sticking them in, <laughs> in bull ant mounds. Yeah. Uh, you know, the usual, you know. Kid, country <laughs> kid, kid stuff. Cruel, violent kid stuff. Uh, <laughs> yes. So... The respect for ants came later. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> so what what started it then? You know, at the end of school, when do you decide to pursue science? Oh, uh, I was always torn between doing biology and physics. Okay. So I was very much into science from a young age. I wanted to be a zoologist as a young child. Mm-hmm. And then I started to question that for whatever reason, who knows, mm. I think some teachers put into my head that there was not many jobs in that area or something. Being young and impressionable, Probably that right. may have influenced me. <laughs> um, obviously, I didn't learn that lesson very well. <laughs> but, uh, and then, so I studied lots of things. I would majored in biochemistry, did an honours in biophysics, All right. working on new ways to detect cancer using laser microscopy techniques. Hmm. And then I moved to Sydney to work as a biochemist for a while for yeah. a, a research firm. 
Um, but in the end, we were doing kind of interesting stuff, but I was just basically moving tiny amounts of liquid between two tubes yeah. and getting a graph on a computer. And this is when you're a working stiff scientist. You yeah, don't get to decide exactly. what you're working on. You're, you're a lab monkey. Yep. <laughs> and I think with biochemistry, the, the, the issues and the concepts are really fascinating. Hmm. But the day-to-day, what you're actually doing and what you see happening around you is pretty dull, hmm. for me anyway. Yeah. So I was already questioning whether I would stay in that field. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to do a PhD and I looked around what all the labs in Sydney, the different universities were doing. Mm-hmm. I came across um, lots of cool honeybee work being done at Sydney University. Mm-hmm. So I went in to check that out, looking, doing honeybee genetics actually. Okay. But while I was there, I ran into someone else in the same lab who was doing really cool stuff with ants and slime mold, mm. looking at problem solving and mazes and things. Yeah. And I was immediately blown away and decided to change tack, change my career angle entirely and do a PhD in that instead. So you became the slime mold guy. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and I've been doing the same thing ever since, happily. Great. Right. And you sort of mentioned how you were sort of jumping from, from job to job. Because after, I mean, that didn't end at your PhD. No. Really, because afterwards you had to, well, you had to. There was an opportunity to go overseas <laughs> and do lots of things. Yeah, so yeah. I managed to get a postdoc over in the States, mm-hmm. in New Jersey, uh, for a couple of years, and that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, really good to experience uh, how the, U- the U.S. does research and how it differs to Australia. Um, like what? <laughs> well... Just the density of labs is so much higher, mm. um, so that funding is greater, or at least it was. This was pre-Trump administration, <laughs> so we'll see how that turns yeah. out. Um, but also, I mean, we, we came up with, we invented our own little conference circuit for just the northeastern United States in social insects, and there was, yeah. you know, tens of labs, and we had 80 people constantly rotating through this conference circuit whereas if i were to do that in australia you know there'd be it's been nationwide less than 10 labs probably doing this kind of stuff mm. spread over the whole country mm. so the density of people is just so much greater plus they're, they're infused with this weird optimism about <laughs> everything generally which is which is great but it means that they're so excited to to work on science and to collaborate and mm. New ideas, let's do it. Really lots of cool energy going through the place. Yeah. I, I did not I don't necessarily feel the same energy in Australia. It's there, but it's yeah, not just as Just at a cultural, condensed. behavioral level, it's different. I still remember going to America for the first time, and my first experience was right in the middle of New York City. Mm. So the most loud, yeah. loud-going thing and just... Seeing Americans doing, wow, they actually talk like that. It's, <laughs> it's not, just like it is in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> they it are really playing is. it up for TV. People yeah. are genuinely, yeah, just enthusiastic and open and honest. And yeah. Australians are much more British about, <laughs> <laughs> about that's, things. That's the best term for it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, and don't get me wrong, I'm glad that I moved back. Mm. Um, and I love doing science here and living in Australia, but it was good to to, to see the difference. Mm. And I'm sure if you 
it's the great thing about doing postdocs overseas. Mm. You get to realize that the world is a big place and people do things differently mm. everywhere. So I'm sure if you did a postdoc in Europe, you'd get a different yeah. field altogether. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a good point. The instability of, of science can be a very trying thing. Mm. Yep. But every now and again, you can change your mindset and see yeah. it as an opportunity and a, and a pro exactly. almost. Well, there aren't many jobs that will let you go overseas for two years or mm. four years that will give you the flexibility to apply anywhere. Mm. And that's putting it a bit mildly. It's like saying... <laughs> you, you <laughs> flexibility for, is a nicer word. <laughs> you, you can apply for a job wherever you want. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but uh, in science, it's kind of forced upon you a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it can be a good thing. Well, you're about to start this postdoc fellowship, which is a three-year contract. Yep. So that's three years of stability. What does that yeah. mean for you? Uh, it's great. I mean, mm. you don't often get that mm. in, in science. So uh, it means I can actually really plan a nice set of experiments, and mm. a nice proper research project that can span a few years mm. rather than trying to cram everything into a smaller contract. Mm. Um, but it also means other things for personal life, like you can feel a bit more certain about the near future, mm. that you'll be living in the same yeah. city, country for a little while, and you can you know, start to think about putting down roots. Or... Which is important given your current yeah, life yeah. stage. Yeah, so, you know... <laughs> How many pro- weeks is it now? I don't know. <laughs> 30-something weeks, so a baby due in... The 30th of May, mm-hmm. and my contract was running out on the 23rd of June. <laughs> so it was looking for a while there, like I could be out of a job yeah. with a little one on the way. So mm. this, that's the price we pay to uh, to be research yeah. scientists at this level. Unfortunately, mm. it just takes a little while to get enough. Credit publications, grants going that you can get a, a permanent job somewhere. Mm. And I think it's worth it for sure. For yeah. me, it is. And we, how, how do you plan family stuff? I don't think when, you can. I don't think know, anyone can. Money wise, you can only really plan what, maybe six months, yeah. three months ahead. Do you plan or do you just wing it? I think you just have to wing it. Mm. Uh, so. If you have to plan things like moving overseas and you have a partner, mm. are they going to come with you or stay behind? Mm. There's all sorts of pros and cons, but in the end, you've just got to either be lucky or be flexible. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the only way to do it. So, I know, I got this, you know, I see just lots of scientists in relationships with other scientists and... I have had people openly say, well, this, that's the only way it can work. You need to be with another scientist so they'll understand and you can work things out together. Mm. But you're managing to do fine, right? Yeah, so <laughs> um, my partner's a lawyer, so very different mm. um, sort of culture around that kind of job as well. So, yeah. But I've been very, very lucky that she's super understanding and mm-hmm. supportive and that she's had a, she works at a firm that's also very flexible and mm. it's been great. Um, as for whether, 
the only way to get it to work is to be with a scientist. I think, sure, they'll understand the situation a bit better, but it does have its cons as well in that if you do want to get to settle down somewhere, mm. you've got to find a city or a university that has two positions available <laughs> in exactly the fields that yeah. you both work in, and that's extremely rare. Mm. And so in I Australia, think, that's... Yeah. I mean, what, Sydney? Yeah, the way, exactly. Yeah, more than one university, right? <laughs> yeah, and that, that's another problem. I think if you really value, um, if you want to live in, the, in a rural setting mm. and do really good research at a world-class university mm. in Australia, you're going to be torn, I think. Mm. Um, well, I mean, I've heard the opposite uh, said, that having a partner outside science is great because... It gives you perspective, mm. and you're not stuck in your little bubble all the time. Yeah. Mm. Well, there's a definite bubble. I mean, <laughs> think about an ivory. People... Would you call it an ivory tower? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Mm. Um, we interact with people that are essentially very similar to us mm. all the time, um, and it's always really eye-opening to yeah to realize that other people think. Totally differently to you. <laughs> I still don't understand it myself, but uh, <laughs> apparently they do. And yeah, well, that's getting worse. <laughs> no, I don't know. My one of my latest rants is about social media mm. and realizing that my own Facebook feeds mm. and Twitter feeds are just things I want to hear. Yeah, and they're designed like that. Yeah, you know, they're they're consumer you know, designed. Yeah. And so then when, you know, things happen or particular politicians are voted in or things like that, I'm really shocked because I didn't think that that was possible. Yeah. I don't know people in my own circles that have these particular values and I'm not seeing them in the media that I consume. Yeah. And so without even realizing it, you just, you become this little, your own little safe space. Yeah. And I think it's the same on the other side. Yeah, that's the other scary thing. <laughs> we're really becoming sort of two, like the difference between people based on their political views or mm. religious views or whatever views they want is starting to become really separated. Like it's scary because the internet and social media was meant to connect us. And it and is. It's, it's connecting us to the people we want to be connected to. And not dividing to us into little <laughs> clicks and yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it's a worry. Yeah. Maybe that could be your next collective behavior. Yeah, non configure oh. <laughs> So many yeah. diverse Facebook for ants. People ants <laughs> to form left and right political parties. There's something there. Uh, and so it, we sh- I should probably let you get back to. Doing stuff because you're busy teaching yes. and everything as well. Yes. If people want to find out about your research, you have a website. I do. Yes. It is Chris R. Reed, R-E-I-D, mm-hmm. dot WordPress dot com. All right. And you've just got all information about the research you do and stuff you get up to. and Yeah, lots of pretty pictures. Lots of stuff. Um, Looking at it now, there's a neat slime mold picture right yeah. on the banner. <laughs> yeah, so check it out if you're interested. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And if you're really interested, come see if we can work on something. Yeah, come and volunteer and yeah. people can 
What kind of slime old lab? Slime mold and agar plates and stuff, right? Yeah. Always looking for people to do that. <laughs> yeah. The next slime mold victim. I mean, volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> it has been a bit of a morbid podcast in yeah. the end. <laughs> it's just the cloudy days. <laughs> all right. We'll wrap things up. Thanks again, Chris, for coming on the podcast. Thank you, James. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to uh, hear more, you can subscribe on iTunes and Twitter. If you want to help us out, drop us a review on iTunes. I'd very much appreciate that. You can follow us on Twitter with the handle at InSituScience or check out the website InSituScience.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.